2: Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to The Tom Sumner Show. Hello, darling. This is O'Vira, Mistress of the Dark, and you're celebrating schlock sober with Tom Sumner.
1: Rival, Mother Mary comes to me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be, until my early darkness is standing right.
3: good morning everybody welcome to the show i'm tom sumner we got a great show in store but uh starting off as we do throughout the month of october with our schlocktober pick of the day that happened to be the worst cover of a Beatles song ever and for people who don't know about our custom every year in october um i promised some some new picks for schlocktober 2020 and that was uh, one of them, but uh, Schlocktober is where, while everyone else is celebrating Rocktober and Shocktober, we here at the Tom Sumner program celebrate Schlocktober with a different odd or horrible recording each day. And that was our pick of the day. Uh, but I promise better music ahead coming up in the third half of our three-hour tour. We have, as we uh, always try to do on Fridays, uh, local musical guest uh, M. Burns and members of the band All Day Monday will be uh, our guests. Also, I'll be talking with um, New York Times bestseller uh, Owen Colfer, who uh, will be talking to us from Dublin. He is the uh, uh, creator of the Artemis Fowl series, and now has a spinoff series about Artemis's Younger brothers miles and Beckett the twins the the foul twins if you will and uh, But to start out we're going to talk with an author who has a new book called uh, Beneficence I think I'm saying that right Um, It's a new term for me. Maybe we'll find out what that means as we talk to uh, the author she's uh, the author of the New York Times best-selling memoir without a map and uh she taught writing and uh we're gonna we're gonna find out about this book and lots more with author meredith hall who joins me now by phone meredith good morning and welcome to the show
2: good morning thank you very much for having me
3: and i apologize again for having you sit through uh, that horrible recording
2: That was about the best beginning to a day I've had for a long time. I (laughs) thought it was wonderful.
3: (laughs) Well, I'm glad you get the joke. (laughs) Not not everybody does. Um, But but, uh, on the subject of of getting it, um, this book, you know, at first glance, seems a little dark because it, it revolves around tragedy and guilt and and things that we don't always want to delve into yet you did how come
2: Hmm. that's a good question i think i think i don't shy away from uh the dark parts of our story but i also think that it's a book that is um in the end and overwhelmingly actually about the light it's about love and loyalty and uh buying bounds the, the bonds between family members and the land that they live on um i remember saying when i first met my editor when they bought beneficence uh i said you know it's a it's a i'm a dark writer And he was very surprised. He said, Oh, I don't think you're a dark writer at all. This is a a book filled with light and hope. So um, I'm hoping that he's right that I actually am exploring the range of human experiences. And um, I don't, you know, it's, I think uh, there is no life lived without loss and without some tragedy in some form. And, um, Very few lives lived without love, some, and those are heartbreakers, but most lives are lived with love and connection and loyalty to each other. This is in many ways a study of love in this family with its obligations and also its costs. It's hard to be a member of a family.
3: I I don't want to give too much away, but this starts out with a family of five that live on a dairy farm in, uh, in Maine and um it's it's very much about farm life i mean it starts out that way did you grow up on a farm or in a rural area
2: yes i grew up in northern new england in a small town and um i did not grow up on a farm i grew up around animals and i think most people uh in small town uh northern new england are very familiar with farming. It's around us, it's very real for us. These are small family farms. Um, I grew up uh, with my sister uh, keeping 4-8 sheep. That was the beginning of it. (laughs) When I was married and had my children, uh, I was surprised that I wanted to go back to that. And I raised sheep and chickens and big gardens with my children. Um, And uh, I I think more than anything, that farm life that I described. This is a, a successful dairy farm in a small town in Maine, close to the coast, but not right on the coast. And I think more than anything, what I wrote is a kind of nostalgia, a kind of longing that I felt my entire life to have lived that life. That's that's the world I wish I had lived. And um, it's very, very appealing to me and uh, a, a I felt as if by writing it, I was actually writing a place that I fully imagined and wanted to be part of.
3: Now, uh, it's been said about this book that, that, you know, at first glance it sounds like a slow read, but that, you know, if you start reading it, you won't want to put it down. You'll you'll want to read it in one sitting, which is a real tribute to your writing. And you've made uh, a couple of... um, sort of unique choices. One, one of them is having this story told from three different points of view instead of one voice. Um, why why did you make that choice?
2: Well, uh, you're asking great questions, actually, Tom. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I get uh, lucky
3: sometimes, Meredith. <laughs> no,
2: it's just a great, a good conversation on my end. Thank you very much. I'm appreciating it. Um, I made that decision. When I first imagined this book, um, I, I understood om- only the very basic part of the story, which was there was going to be a family that was a very happy family, um, very genuinely and deeply bound to each other on this farm. And uh, the, a tragedy would hit this family. And I wanted to see what happened. I wanted to study the effects on even a really well-grounded family. What are the effects of when a a terrible tragedy hits them? And so it was a study. It was intended to be a study of love and um, its failures and its resiliences. And I pictured at the very beginning um, that Top, who is the husband and father, uh was going to make very selfish decisions in the face of that loss and um, find his own kind of consolation and i was mostly i was entirely interested at the very beginning of the book in how this man made those decisions and mostly how he justified those decisions to himself and as i started writing his his story i thought he was going to be the primary teller I understood almost immediately, literally within 10 pages, that that's not the man that was coming down onto the page at all, that I had completely misimagined him. And um, I needed to really regroup. And when I did that, I started to understand that the depth of the story could only happen if his wife, Doris, and one of his children, Dodie. Uh, there are three children. Sonny is the oldest, uh, Dodie is in the middle, and Bestin is the youngest. A boy, and um, I gave Doty a voice in this, and uh, I felt that um, they would be able to, uh, by by exploring their own experience with this love and this loss, and the the bounty and binding of this farm and the family. Uh, that those two other voices would really enrich that experience. And so quickly, it fell uh, into a rhythm uh, throughout the book. Doris speaks, the mother, and then Dodie speaks, and then Tup. And in that rhythm, Doris, Dodie, Tup throughout the book. It also moves through time, starting in the mid-40s and uh, coming forward into the mid-60s.
3: In chronological order, or do you flash back occasionally?
2: Chron- yes, chronological order. I... Not only chronological order, but I use dates very specifically, so the reader always knows exactly where they are. They know that this is 1947. Nine, now this is 1951. Now this is 1954. I I'm very explicit about where we are. I I didn't want the reader. Uh, you know, three voices is a lot for a reader to follow. Um, I think it's. I think it adds richness. I think it adds. A f- I think it creates a feeling that you're actually inside this family This isn't a story being told from one point of view, but you're actually inside this busy active family um,
3: Well, it's the way you would have a conversation with a family it like is, this
2: it is, You would talk it to is.
3: one and then to the other and and then yet another um, And and it wouldn't you wouldn't just pick one out and talk to them alone
2: that's right, and you wouldn't know nearly as much if that's all you knew. You know, if you if you ran into top in town and talked with him every day for two hours, that would be a very different sense of life than if you went out onto that farm and sat in the kitchen with everybody there. So M- that was, M- you know, it, these are real storytellers too. I I love storytelling. I want to pick uh, up
3: on that, uh, Meredith, <laughs> but I have to take a short break here. Can you stick okay. around so we can talk some more? Yes. Okay, Um, my guest is Meredith Hall. She's the author of Beneficence. I'm just not used to that word yet, but I'm going to get there. Uh, We're going to let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. They are WFOV, 92.1 FM in Flint, and uh, we're going to have...
2: some messages if you're streaming as well. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom program on account of because he's so bouncy. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. A
0: social distancing tip.
4: Putting distance between yourself and others is critical to slowing the spread of coronavirus. So here are ways to stay in contact without the physical contact part. Call, send a text, set up a video conference, post on social media, dedicate a song on the radio. If you have symptoms of fever, dry cough, and shortness of breath, call your health care provider before going to their office. For more info, visit coronavirus.gov.
0: Let's all do our part, because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by the America.
4: Ad your
3: children have an amazing superpower. They can help save lives by not having play dates. That's right. By replacing get togethers with virtual play dates and video chats, they can help slow the evil spread of germs. And if your superheroes do go outside, make sure they continue their superhero wing by staying six feet away from others to protect everyone in America Land. Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council.
2: East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community focused and community supported.
3: Your calls matter. Join me and Andrea weekdays from 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern to talk about whatever you want to talk about. The Tom Sumner Program has open phone lines Monday through Friday to hear from you. How's 2020 working out for you so far? How about those damn roads? Call in live at 810-339-8255. It's all about you. We'll be streaming live at TomSumnerProgram.com and simulcast on WFOV 92.1 FM in Flint. Foil hats are optional. You
5: thought you had every Elvis
4: record made, but wait, Elvis sings again. This time, from heaven. That's right, Elvis from heaven. Yes, hear Elvis from Graceland in the Sky. Soul-stirring versions of epic proportions. You'll hear Elvis crooning. Pearly gate rock. All dug up.
3: Lying in the chapel and eleven others. This record also includes a special Elvis message. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Elvis Presley. Order before midnight tonight and receive this Elvis Presley commemorative casket keychain. Open it up. Yes,
4: the king inside. A must for any Elvis fan. Order yours today. To order your Elvis from heaven, send 995 in checker or money order to Elvis from heaven, P.O. Box
2: 714, Cleo, Michigan, 44487. Or save COD charges and phone 555-5554. Use Master Charge or Visa, Canadian residents add $3.
5: Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at Swiftlet.technology.
4: The TomSumnerProgram.com
2: The Tom Sumner
1: This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
3: and welcome back everybody this is the tom sumner program and my guest this hour is the author of a novel called beneficence or beneficence and uh her name is uh, meredith hall and uh, she joins me by phone meredith welcome back thanks for sticking around
2: thank you that was wonderful i loved listening to each of those segments <laughs>
3: Ah, uh, you're so easy to talk to. I I promised <laughs> when we first started talking. There's a couple of things that we probably need to go back and and explain a little bit because we were talking a little bit about you know the how the story is told in three points of view and and there's um, very significant loss involved. It's it's about the center family which starts out as a family of five and becomes a family of four. Because of the loss of a child, and I, I don't think we made that clear. Um, yes. And and I have to ask about the title because it's a new word to me, beneficence. Um, and as a teacher, I'm sure you would tell people like me to look it up. But um, <laughs> but I'm I'm curious about about the title and and what it tells us about the book for those of us who actually have heard the word before
2: <laughs> <laughs> and those of us who haven't well um, beneficence is it, it's rooted in words like benefit and benevolence and um, it is simply um, it, its roots are uh, goodness and this let me go back I guess first to how this book got titled I worked with my editor when I came to him. I had initially um, titled this book just The Centers. Uh, and he was said, yeah, okay, but I think we can do better. And one of the ideas he came up with was beneficence. And I remember I, I thought, that's an odd word and it's an odd title. Um, let me think about this and stay with it a little while. And I finally decided that he was absolutely right, that it really does speak to the, um, the driving um, thoughts of this story. It, it tells us that these people understand this state of goodness and that they, they work hard to live that state of goodness. And to share as a family in that state, and even though something very difficult happens to them, um, beneficence um, tells us that they their struggle is earnest, and what they earn uh, as they move through that struggle um, is always uh, with the, with their uh, is always built around their understanding of that goodness that exists within each of them. They recognize it in themselves, and they recognize it in each other. Top tells us uh, quite often, even as he's making decisions that are harmful to the family, he says, he protests, but I am a good man, and he is. He's a very good man making some bad decisions, Um But the title actually surprised me because after I agreed with my editor, Josh Bodwell, that it was really nice. I like it. Let's go with it. um, I did some copy edits on the book when the copy editor got my manuscript back to me. And I was very surprised to find out that I actually used this word in this book and not (laughs) only once, but four times, Tom. Four times I used the word beneficence in that book, and I had no idea. I didn't know I would heard this, the word before when my editor came to me with it. So it's there. It's definitely, it's definitely at the core of this book. So
3: that's that's amazing. And and we were talking in the last segment um, about the centers themselves because this book is told from three points of view in that family: uh, one of the children and the two parents. Um, Doris and, and uh Tupp Center and uh, and their daughter Doty. Um, it uh, you were saying that they were good storytellers, and yes. and then you started to remark that that you appreciate good storytelling. Um, is is that something that that you grew up with? Was was your family prone to tell stories when when they were together around the dinner table or
2: or wherever i wish so much that i could say yes to that question my family uh was really remarkably non-storytelling and it was i think it's a loss i it's i regret that i wish very much that i had grown up around stories uh there were so few stories that uh, I have two siblings, and none of the three of us have a single story about even a grandparent, let alone a great grandparent. And um, it's, I think it is a loss. I think that I really believe that human beings are uh, we're built to be storytellers. We're meant to tell stories. We are social beings who are meant to, um, to be together throughout the day and the, into the night. And we talk a lot. If you listen, if you go into a building where there are a lot of people, the amount of talk is phenomenal. And I I think that we are designed to share with each other. And I think a lot of that happens in that way we, we sit with a friend and say, did I ever tell you, or once when I was a kid, or I had an uncle who. Those are all these small stories that we tell. I think the fact that I didn't grow up with them really encouraged me to Um, let my own stories loose. And I storytelling on the page for me is the greatest joy in my life. I love it. It feels as if every rule is off, um, every inhibition there is. It is just me and that page and my ability, my recognition that anything can happen, anything. Anybody can do anything. And I love that. I didn't know at the time that I was actually giving that to each of these characters, but they are all storytellers and uh, storytelling within the family is very important. So the book is written, if you actually look at the page, um, as you move through the book, there are a lot, many, 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 innumerable uh, blank spaces on the page, breaks between segments, because they are episodic storytellers. So they tell us, um, what they were doing this morning, and then there was this interruption, and then Top said, or, um, you know, the, uh, the children needed to do this chore, and then there's a break on the page, and it's a story of something that happened uh, maybe a week ago, or maybe 10 years ago, or maybe when Top and Doris were young, young people, and we hear that memory, that story, and then a break on the page, and we 're on to something else, so this these are kind of episodes of storytelling, and um, it's it 's an intuitive way of writing for me. I only realized after the fact that I also wrote my memoir that way, so this is clearly just is uh, the way that I tell the larger story, a book length story is through these episodic storytelling sessions.
3: Well, I was fascinated by by your comments because i I was fortunate to have parents that were good and funny storytellers yeah yes, um, what a
2: blessing for you my my yeah. mother and father yes, both
3: were great. and what a thrill for me to see my daughters carrying that on yes and I've had that experience to see them you know uh, you know just to kind of watch from the outside as they you know spin their their tails and and it's uh it's so much fun to see that and I think you're right I think we we are sort of hardwired to share information in that way through stories and, and,
2: I, and I yes I think so Tom and I think it's one of the ways that we bind ourselves to each other you know this this uh this creates a kind of um stitching between us holding us together through time even generations through time even so it's uh you were very lucky to grow up with that
3: and and uh and and with this um with this book it's um, an opportunity because of the way you've written it with the three points of view, as we touched on in the last segment, you actually put the reader sort of in the room.
2: Yes, and, the, you know, the farm place matters a lot in this book. These people are so entirely of this farm and of this land Uh, It has been in their family, in Tup Center's family, for generations. He's the fifth generation. It's a, a small but very successful dairy farm. It had fallen into disrepair when his father had it. His father was not an enthusiastic farmer and found no joy at all in that life. And in fact, chose Tup, not the oldest child, from among his five children to um, actually save money and send Tup away from the farm to go to college. He wanted to rescue Tup from that life. And uh, Tup did go to college, he went to a main college, excuse me, and he, um, after a couple years there, his father died and the other siblings uh, didn't want uh, to take on the farm and Tup left college to go home and he did it very gratefully and um, really really with all the hard work it was really a very passionate experience for him to take over that farm but besides the land and the barn and the cows, the pastures the apple orchard, there's a creek that runs through the center land center creek, um, a hill with pine trees on it and the graveyard of all the the ancestors, all the family members. Um, they live on a dirt road far from town. The, the land itself holds them, but so does that house. The house is uh, really at the core of this book. And we do walk into that house with this family. And um, so much of their day is um, dedicated to almost ritualized work. It's they each know their part. They've done these these roles over and over and over again. They understand. I think the most significant thing is they understand the imperative of doing that work. They know that it's necessary work. And they do it um, with great pleasure because they understand the benefits that come back to the family from that shared hard work. And we get to be inside that. We get to be part of that family and listening, uh, being being aware of sharing those small daily routines and the language that that they share around those around those chores
3: you, you know in in stories that examine uh, loss we generally think in terms of loss mm-hmm. and grief yet this book looks at loss mm-hmm. and guilt
2: mm-hmm.
3: how did how did that evolve
2: well Right from the beginning, Doris tells us in the first couple pages uh, of the book, um, I should say I think the book is is broken in. We talked about the timeline of this book from the mid-40s to the mid-60s. The book is broken into four parts, before, during, after, and the last very short section here, which brings us to their current moment. And the before section allows us to see this family. It introduces the family in all of the graces that it experiences. They, uh, they, Doris tells us early on, uh, Tup and I know enough to know that we are blessed people. She also in those early pages tells us, uh, there's a small scene where uh, two of her young children um, get out of her sight while she's doing laundry outside, and she panics. She can't find them. And of course, in the end, they're simply locked in the milk room attached to the barn. and they, they got themselves into a little bit of trouble, but they're right there. But she she conveys to us in that panicky several pages that she senses that she might be a mother who cannot take care of her children, who can't protect her children. And again and again, both top and doris have moments where they feel this kind of ice cold grip on them as a sort of dread that something is going to happen and they are not going to be able to protect their children or they're going to not only not be able to but they will fail to protect their children and so when this tragedy hits this family both top and doris are knocked over with a feeling that if they had made a different decision if they had uh, just tilted the universe by one degree by making some small move, any small move, it would have prevented this tragedy from happening. And they are racked with guilt. Part, a great part of the story centers on Tuppenderus, both fe- each of them feeling that terrible, terrible weight of, of grief and guilt. But not being, not blaming the other. They don't blame the other. So each of them is carrying their own guilt. They are not blamed by the other, but they carry their own guilt. You know, and guilt. I think is a guilt is a guilt is a very. <clears throat> I think it's one of our most uh, primitive emotions, and it's one of our most difficult to deal with. How do we find our way out of a sense of self-blame?
3: You know a lot of writers um there are some they all have different ways of going about it. Some are very disciplined and and sit down at a certain time every day and get so many uh so many words or so many pages done for that day and then some binge write you know they just the the story mm-hmm. unfolds as if it's writing itself. You have taught writing what do you tell students? Are the important things to consider I'm fascinated by by uh, creativity and and whether it can be taught what do you tell students when they're facing a blank page
2: well the question is whether creativity can be taught I don't think creativity needs to be taught I believe that we are all innately creative and one of the tragedies of our modern lives is that we most of us don't create anything and I think we need to we need to we need to make something of ourselves. As you know, The smallest thing, I think, making a garden or uh, you know, making a great stack of firewood for the winter in your woodshed, we have to do something that we can look at and say, I made that. Um, and we don't, most of us don't have the opportunity to do that. The question of whether you can teach people to write well, I think you can teach um, most writers to write better. But I do think that there are gifted writers that come along, and they really don't need much teaching. I think they just know what they're doing. Um, They need experience, but the teaching itself doesn't help. Um, But on your separate question of patterns, I taught undergraduate uh, writers and then for many years graduate writers in an MFA program at the University of New Hampshire. And I... um, for all of those students, at all of those ages, I taught drafting and revision, uh, writing a draft, getting whatever it is on the page, and then working over it again and again and again as you refine it. And I'm a little bit embarrassed to say that I don't work like that at all. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I believe that it's a good way to work, but I don't work that way. it It feels to me as if I don't revise, and I know that's nonsense. That just can't be. So I think what I'm doing is I I don't have a I don't have a a document that I then return to, and so it makes me feel that I don't I don't that isn't a draft uh, that I return to to revise. But that's not true. I think what I'm doing as I as I write is that I'm revising as I go. I I work very intensely. And it's a very, very intense act for me. And I think that what I'm doing is writing a sentence and another and another and another, and then returning to the first and the second, and then going back perhaps a paragraph or two. I wouldn't be going back 10 pages to find something and redo that. This is just within what I can see on my screen, and reworking that and smoothing that and uh, solving problems. Um and then, moving on, so I think i 'm revising at the at as part of the act of writing. I think they're almost simultaneous acts for me. Um, I do have um very clear daily habits. I do my morning chores and take a walk in the morning and then sit down to write and I write for many hours. I really love writing. I hear writers um complain about the sort of grim work of having to sit at the desk and do their work. And I don't understand it. I love it. It's absolutely the most gratifying and thrilling thing that I do in my day. And um, I have listened for years to Gregorian chants when I write. So I move into my writing space. I put on my Gregorian chants. Well, that explains that
3: the dark writing, Meredith. <laughs> well, I
2: don't think this <laughs> Right. You know, Gregorian chants are actually very, um, they believe, you know, there's such a belief in redemption and in, um, in a kind of uh, a goodness that's waiting for us. You know, things resolve. In, in Gregorian chants, things resolve. And the nice thing about them is that I have no idea. It's all in Latin. I have no idea what they're talking about. But it's very sacred music. It's very uplifting. I find very uplifting. Music. It's very uh, celebratory. And, um, and so I listen to this music that I don't really have to pay attention to, but it is sacred and it is beautiful. I'm not religious. I'm not at all religious, but this music suits me very well. And I've listened to it for so long with my writing that when I flick that switch, it's like it's almost like one of those vacuum tubes. I just get sucked <laughs> <shot> right down <laughs> into this creative place. I'm there. And I never listen. If I leave my, my writing desk to come out and make tea, I turn it off. I don't want to hear it in the, di- in the background. That's my writing music. Um, and then I write through the day, and I most frequently miss lunch. I write right through and sort of surface mid to late-ish afternoon and realize that I'm hungry and it's time to get back to my day. But I live in another universe when I do the writing. It's a pretty wonderful place. It's almost drug like it almost I almost feel guilty because it feels so good to be in that space
3: i it's interesting that you talk about you know creating a certain environment because I've talked to different writers and you know some go off to a a cabin in the northeast someplace and and just kind of go off the grid for six mm-hmm. months and they come out with mm-hmm. a book and and then yes. there are some that can sit and write in a cyber cafe and and i've oh. I, it's it's just fascinating to me how different people's approaches can be
2: yes i have worked with graduate students who not only tell me they like to work in that cafe but they can't write if they're not around a lot of noise and it is it's 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 fascinating to me i just don't i can't understand it but that is their writing form so
3: now you split your time between maine i think i read this between Maine and the San Francisco Bay, is it? The Bay Area? uh, uh,
2: Berkeley, and this is a fairly new uh, rhythm in my life. I have two sons. I had had all three sons in California, and so I started going out to Berkeley and renting a place and um, being close to them. They were all in the Bay Area. And um, one eventually moved to Austin with his wife and children. And that left, two in the Bay Area. And so my, and as I've gotten older, Maine's winters become less and less fun. <laughs> and climate, climate change has made our winters very icy and gray. We get very little snow. And um, so it's, they're not as beautiful and fun to be outside in as they used to be. And um, even walking gets hard. Uh, Meredith, uh, I have to put
3: a comma there again. I, I have another break coming up. Can... Can yes. you stick around and, and we can uh, yes. wrap That's things pleasure. up? Yes. All right. Uh, my guest is Meredith Hall. She is the author of a novel called Beneficence. And uh, we're going to continue after we let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words and edgewise or do whatever they do-, do when we go to break. And if you're streaming us, we have some messages Hi, as this well. This is Joe By from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner program.
2: Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey,
3: welcome back, everybody. We continue my conversation with the author of uh, a novel that uh, follows the lives of uh, a family uh, living on a dairy farm in Maine from 1947 to 1965 where they suffer loss Guilt and Beneficence, the title of the book, by Meredith Hall. And Meredith joins me by phone. Meredith, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> what's next for Meredith Hall?
2: Well, I have been working on a novel um, since um, actually when the shelter-in-place order came. I was in Berkeley. So on March 16th, suddenly uh, I was home and doing nothing else. And it was actually very good um, timing because I had been thinking about a particular novel that I wanted to work on. And I got to work on that and uh, I worked very productively. It felt good. It felt like things were, you know, writing is, is a constant process of solving problems. And I, I was working through those problems as they arose. I could predict those problems. But uh, now, with Beneficence having come out, it launched just yesterday. Um, I am, there's so much conversation about it that I'm realizing in so many ways that. Uh, there is more that I might want to say. I've never understood why writers (laughs) write sequels. I've always had a little bit of contempt for it. And suddenly I'm thinking, hmm, you know, I'm starting to think that I might like to return to that world. And it would be Beston that I would look at. He was the youngest child, so young that I didn't give him a voice. I thought that would not be productive. Um, But he, by the time the book ends, He is uh, older, he's left home early, um, and lives in Boston, works for a printer. And he's a very talented piano musician. He's a songwriter, music writer. And he interests me a lot, and he had no voice in this book. So I actually think that I might move away from, set aside the novel that I was working on, and start thinking about what this might look like for Beston. um, what his world is. I, I know, I understand that I'm done with the center farm in Alsted. Um I'm sure that it would be peripheral. Um, but uh, Beston has his own life, and I need to follow that. So that's what I'm thinking at this point.
3: That's fun that you answered uh, that way, because I often ask writers of, of trilogies and series if they knew it was going to be a trilogy and a series At the beginning, or did they get to the end of the first book and go? But wait, there's more. (laughs) (laughs) And
2: and how did they answer, Tom?
3: Very often, um, well, not not frequently, but not infrequently, um, they they say they got to the end of the first book and and said, "Wait, there's more to this story." And so Mm -hmm. it was it was interesting to hear you say that. Um,
2: And you know, it's not even more to the story in a lot of ways i have I, as I wrote this book, I became deeply emotionally involved with these people, and uh, to the point that they haunted me all day, every night for weeks and months, as I wrote the core of this book, um, I was so preoccupied with them that they truly they it's not an exaggeration to say they felt like family members, and I came to love them very much, and so part of it too is a feeling that um that they're here they're just here in my life and i need i need to listen to them again pay attention
3: um one of the uh, one of the things that i'm always fascinated by is writing is a very solitary thing do you find yourself uh with a book coming out like beneficence uh, which dropped yesterday um Uh, Aside from the fact that this is an unusual time to be promoting a book, but are you comfortable with with the promotion, with doing interviews like this, but more importantly, meeting people that have read the book and and getting that kind of feedback? Are you a people person in that way, or do you shy away from that spotlight a little?
2: Yes, so... Um, I am a, a, quite a shy person, and I live a very quiet life. My work is very private. I don't share my writing with anybody while I'm writing it. The book, the book is finished before anybody sees it, um, which is, I think, unusual. I see writers, I know writers who have readers, and I can't imagine it. This is, I, I, it would be very confusing to me to have people while I'm in process with a book. Um, talking to me about it and sharing their their ideas about it. But then when the book is done, when my memoir, Without a Map, came out, um, people love memoir because they love to talk about the life that was lived. And so uh, it's really a a trial by fire for a quiet, uh, shy person to take a very, very intimate and honest memoir out into the world. And have not only the book, but her life discussed very openly for two or three years. <laughs> and I actually found, um, you know, of course, there are limits. There have to be limits and boundaries. But I actually found that conversation and the interaction with people really wonderful. I really loved it. I loved, I loved the conversation about um, telling the truth and um, not holding secrets and also what the craft is of memoir. So it surprised me how much I liked it. This time around, you are right, this pandemic has changed everything. It's turned the literary world on its head. And so it's extremely difficult to get notice for your book. Um, My memoir was so successful that I thought, we all thought, that this novel would just follow right on its heels. And uh, it hasn't been able to do that because... Nothing is functioning the way it used to function. So the conversation has shifted online. This is all now. Uh, there are no in-person events and no audience. And so there has been a challenge for me of uh, getting comfortable with and trying to master conversations where I don't see anybody. That's the big shift for me. I, I Because I'm a teacher, you know, I've been in front of the classroom for years. I love that interaction. I love having people... Uh, In conversation with me, a dynamic conversation. And doing it to, you know, I've done um, many events now where the only thing on my computer screen is my own face. I'm talking to myself. (laughs) 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 So it's pretty disconcerting. But um, the conversation itself, I love. It's been very gratifying. The response to this book has been overwhelming and overwhelmingly enthusiastic, and any writer loves that. So, yes, I'm game. I'm
3: um, Meredith, we're just about out of time, but I always, and I've always been really enjoying this conversation, by the way. Um, Me too. But I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website?
2: I do. It's meredithhall.org. And uh, you'll be able to uh, read about this new book, Beneficence, um, places to order it that might be not just the big, uh, the giant chain at the top, but some more local places. And um, uh, you'll find my memoir, Without a Map, and lots of other writings that I've done. uh, I've written many, many essays, uh, personal essays, personal narratives that are there, and my events, and also um, all the news as the book is reviewed. And uh, we just got a Washington Post review on launch day, so that was lovely. Uh, Hard enough to get a review and that they were kind enough to uh, hold on to it for launch day was great. Um, So all those... Did
3: I lose you? Well, I think I uh, I think I lost Meredith, but she is the uh, author of a, a new novel just came out yesterday called *Beneficence* that follows the lives of uh, a family on a dairy farm in Maine from 1947 to 1965, and uh, we got lots of uh, good stuff coming up. Um, we'll have more of the Tom Sumner program. Straight ahead.
1: Now,
0: when a virus comes along that's spreading like a plague, and POTUS and his lackeys have been nothing if not vague, well, then you've got to trust the CDC and listen. Well bid our free society farewell. bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. And if we don't act quick and social distance, it will mire us in a stretch of quarantine that last until July. A super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. And if you got a better cough in your arm, and if you got a better <coughs> now back in 1918, influenza had its run. But half the dots were busy overseas with World War One. Today we have mass media and scientists to say, if you don't want this virus, well then stay six feet away. Super damn important that we practice isolation because we're asymptomatic while it's an incubation we'll overwhelm our hospitals if there's not mitigation it's super damn important that we practice isolation if we don't do it then we're all gonna die if we don't do it then we're all gonna die and so I hope at last you'll take this lesson here to heart cause it's already scary and we're only at the start if you get bored just think of the immunocompromised who can't go much of anywhere unless it's sterilised oh super bad transmittable contagious awful virus if we don't act quick and social distance it will mire us in a stretch of quarantine the lesson and rely A super bad, transmittable super bad, transmittable super Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. Super bad, transmittable, contagious, You pilots, get off my lawn.
4: We're trying to do a radio show down here. It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go
3: on. Go on, get out of here. It's t-